Good evening. I'm Roger Huang Maldonado, president of the New York City Bar Association, and I welcome you to tonight's uh, program on the First Amendment in 21st Century America. We started this First Amendment series last year following the tragic events at Charlottesville. Those events and the media's coverage of those events led many of our city bar members to openly question what does the First Amendment's protection of free speech mean in these times? Our goal then, as it is tonight, was to, to provide a space where experts, this panel, could talk about the state of the law, current events, and future considerations. As we did last year, we will try to leave time at the end of the program for questions. Uh, but as occurred last year, we can't guarantee that we'll get to each of your questions. Um, this area of law, as I am just discussing with the panel members now, clearly raises many questions and requires very difficult line drawing, including whether, and if so, how, to, to strike a balance between many competing interests. Our panel, therefore, is here to help us take a step back and think collectively about these very hard questions. And now I'm speaking to our association members. We need to consider these questions both as lawyers and as members of the communities in which we live and work. As for our esteemed panel, I can't possibly give you uh, their complete bios. We, we don't have enough time to go over all of the awards, all of the honors, all of the interactions they've had with uh, both personally and through television and other media and their students, all of their incredible input into the uh, law of the First Amendment. Um, but I do urge you to pick up the flyers on which they are, we have access to their bios online because please take a look at them. They are indeed truly impressive. But for, the, for tonight's purposes, I'm going to be very brief. Uh, starting all the way on my right, we have Alex Abdo, who is a senior staff attorney at the Knight First Amendment Institute. He has been at the forefront of litigation relating to NSA surveillance, encryption, anonymous speech online, and government transparency. Uh, we have uh, next uh, Dan Kornstein, an, an accomplished trial lawyer who has litigated several notable First Amendment cases, including filing an amicus brief in a Supreme Court case involving the trademarking of the name The Slants. We have uh, next to me Nadine Strassen, who is the John Marshall Harlan II Professor of Law at New York Law School. From 1991 through 2008, she served as president of the ACLU, the first woman to hold that position in that organization. Of particular relevance here, uh, Nadine's book, Hate, Why Should We Resist It With Free Speech, Not Censorship, was just published this past May. To my immediate left, we have our moderator, Jamal Green, and uh, Jamal is the Dwight Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. His scholarship and teaching focuses on the structure of legal and constitutional argument. Next to him, we have Floyd Abrams, one of the nation's foremost thinkers, speakers, authors, and litigators on First Amendment issues. He has argued frequently in the Supreme Court, representing major media and news outlets including the New York Times in the Pentagon Papers case 
and appearing as amicus on behalf of Senator Mitch McConnell et al. in the Citizens United case. And finally, uh, we have our very frequent uh, speaker here at the City Bar, our, our member Carmelin Malalis, who was appointed chair and commissioner of the New York City Commission on Human Rights by Mayor de Blasio in November 2014, and who has been steadily revitalizing the agency in all respects. In all respects. Prior to that, Carmelin was a partner and practice group head at Uten and Golden, where she represented employees on a broad range of workplace issues. A few logistics. There are index cards and pencils on the back table. If you have a question during the course of this program, please pick up the card, uh, fill it out, and hold it up. It will be collected, and please, only one question per card. As I indicated, based on last year's experience, we may not get to all of them, but we will do our best. I really do hope you enjoy tonight's program. Um, I encourage you to uh, participate as best you can. And with that, I now hand matters over to Jamal Green. Thank you. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming. Uh, we have a lot of topics to, uh, that we could get to. We'll, we'll kind of see how the, how the evening uh, goes. Uh, but I thought we'd start out by kind of trying to get everyone onto more or less the same page in terms of legal doctrine, and I mean this in a very kind of brief um, summary way. Uh, I, of course, uh, teach constitutional law, so I'm kind of exposed to First Amendment and free speech law all the time. Um, some of you, it may have been a while since you were in the classroom on some of these issues. Um, so I thought, um, given the nature of the topics uh, that uh, have arisen in recent uh, years in First Amendment and free speech related uh, law, uh, I thought I'd uh, actually ask Daniel um, to get us started by just saying, giving us a kind of brief overview on a couple of uh, broad topic areas. One being uh, the law surrounding incitement and hate speech, uh, and the other uh, being what is known in First Amendment law as a public forum doctrine. So how does the First Amendment apply different, differently in different institutional settings? Um, and just to kind of get us on the same page as we start the conversation. So um, Daniel, you want to get started? Thank you, Jamal. Uh, the governing doctrine about hate speech really comes from uh, the Brandenburg versus Ohio case from 1969, which most people think of as an improvement on uh, Justice Holmes and Brandeis's clear and present danger case. It really has two elements. Um, essentially, it says that the uh, advocacy of the use of force or the violation of law cannot be prohibited or punished unless it is, number one, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and two, likely to produce such action. It's a lot more restrictive than clear and present danger. It gives a lot more breathing space for the speaker. But it's a perfect example of the uh, tension that most questions in the First Amendment area are, or bring up because there's a conflict between values. Is the value of free speech, the protected uh, area of the First Amendment, outweighed or less than the value, in this case, of uh, violence, uh, public disorder. 
and we see throughout the First Amendment field over and over again that kind of uh, weighing, um, even absolutist, Justice Black um, most notably, uh, he would push the doctrine into, well, is it covered by the First Amendment? Remember in the 1960s when the sit-in cases and on-band cases came up, Justice Black said, well, those aren't covered by the First Amendment, therefore it's not a problem. But that involves making some choices as to which values um, you count more. And so we see it over and over again. In the public forum area, the general doctrine is that uh, if a space whether it's owned by the government or by long tradition, has been open for uh, people to make discussion and to talk about public issues, then it continues to have that quality uh, to it. And that's something that uh, I, I guess Hyde Park Speaker's Corner uh, in London is probably the, uh, the best known uh, international example uh, of that. But again, over and over again, uh, whether it's in the libel area or um, just triggering warnings or anything else. It's always which value do you esteem more highly? And um, I, I think it explains a lot of the cases. Uh, my, my friend Floyd in the Citizens United uh, case um, had a number of steps. One, do corporations have First Amendment rights? Do, uh, does the First Amendment right include making political donations? And then, does that outweigh the um, um, integrity of the electoral process? So at each point, there are choices. Uh, thank you. Uh, I want to get a, a bit more concrete uh, now that we've gotten a, a, a very kind of, uh, an overview, overview at a certain level of generality. Very recently, uh, as uh, many of you will remember, uh, there is an incident uh, around, surrounding the press pass uh, for the White House of Jim Acosta, the CNN uh, reporter. He had had a, 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 a heated interaction with the president, uh, after which uh, his, uh, his regular access press pass uh, was, uh, was uh, suspended. Uh, uh, Alex, can you explain a little bit uh, about what the kind of kerfuffle uh, over that issue was. What are, what's, the, what's, the, what's the legal issue that that raises? Because, of course, the White House is not, um, not Hyde Park. That's right. um, but, of course, there, are, there were free speech issues raised in the case. So. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Jamal. And it's a delight to be here uh, again from last year. Uh, so let me back up and start before getting into the details of that case with the, the public forum doctrine more generally. So um, it is true that... Uh, there are many places that are often open for expressive uh, conduct or activity that are not what we think of as traditional places for free speech, like sidewalks or parks. Um, and there's a doctrine that accommodates those. It's called the public forum doctrine. And it's a doctrine that holds that when the government opens a space for expressive activity by the public, the government then relinquishes certain rights. It relinquishes the right to exclude people from that space for arbitrary reasons or for reasons relating to the viewpoint of the speech that they're engaging in. Um, it can, however, uh, impose certain types of limitations in uh, these spaces that it has opened up to the public, what are called reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions. The quintessential public forum is a town hall meeting where a city may do its business and invite commentary by the public. 
um, uh, that's you know, considered to be a public forum because the city has opened up the space for commentary by the public. Um, but it can impose certain restrictions. It can uh, you know, limit how long everyone stands at the podium. Uh, it can, uh, in some cases, say we're going to talk about this subject but not that subject. But it still can't uh, exclude people for arbitrary reasons or uh, because it doesn't like uh, the content of what, uh, you know, the, the viewpoint that they're expressing at the forum. So that's the, the background uh, law that uh, is kind of brought to bear on the question of Jim Acosta's press pass. Um, his press pass was revoked, uh, uh, it seems, uh, based on the president's dissatisfaction with the questions that he was asking. If you remember, uh, Acosta was asking the president repeatedly about his characterization of the migrant caravan as an invasion of the United States. Um, and the, the president, I forget if it was later that day or the next day, um, uh, either himself or one of his associates had the press pass of, of Acosta revoked. And uh, CNN ultimately went to court arguing that White House press briefings are a form of public forum uh, and that the president cannot exclude people from those briefings for arbitrary reasons or for reasons based on viewpoint. And they argued that uh, Acosta had been effectively excluded on the basis of viewpoint. Um, and it turns out that there is, in fact, a decision on point in the D.C. Circuit, which is the circuit in which CNN filed the case. It's a case from the 1970s, 1977, called Cheryl versus Knight. Uh, and it involved uh, a correspondent for the nation who ha whose press pass, uh, request for a press pass had been denied on the basis of supposed security concerns. Um, and he filed suit and argued that uh, it had been, uh, that he hadn't been given the process he was entitled um, for denying his press pass. And the DC Circuit held uh, that White House press briefings are in fact a place where important First Amendment rights are at stake and the rights of the press to be there to gather news are implicated and that the White House couldn't deny somebody access to that, uh, that briefing or couldn't kick somebody out for arbitrary reasons or reasons less than compelling ones. Um, and uh, I haven't yet read the transcript from, from Jim Acosta's proceeding. So he filed suit, he uh, asked for a temporary restraining order reinstating um, his press pass and the court held a hearing uh, and it was decided uh, in open court without I don't think it was ever reduced to a written order, a written statement of reasons, and the transcript has not yet been released. I checked again last night and it's still not out. Um, but the press re you know, reporting on it suggests that the court agreed that uh, White House press briefings, per this 1977 decision, um, are a, a, a place where important, uh, important First Amendment rights are at stake, and held that before the White House could revoke Jim Acosta's press pass, it had to explain to him why it was doing so and give him um, an opportunity to respond, essentially due process rights to protect the important First Amendment uh, uh, interests at stake. Um, and shortly after that ruling, the White House agreed to reinstate uh, Acosta's press pass, uh, and, CNN, you know, and CNN, in response, dropped, uh, dropped the lawsuit. Um, and instead, now the White House has a, a new set of rules before, there weren't really clear rules on when somebody uh, could or could not be kicked out of a White House press briefing. And now the White House has implemented new rules, and, and some people complain that those rules are worse than the ambiguity that, um, uh, that characterized the you know, previous understanding of, of you know, why you could or could not be kicked out. Um, but the key kind of rule that was meant to, I think, target uh, Acosta was one that uh, limited reporters to asking a single question unless they got permission by uh, the White House to ask a follow-up question. He promptly violated that the next day. If I can add something, <laughs> sure. uh, it's really important to understand that the First Amendment protects not only the right of the speaker to convey ideas and information, 
but also the right of the audience. And when we're talking about the media, the right of the general public to use the media as surrogates. That's a concept that's been used in these cases to, uh, since we can't all as uh, individuals attend the president's press briefings, and yet as we the people, to quote the opening words of our Constitution, uh, have sovereign power to responsibly exercise it, we need to get full, unfiltered, uncensored access uh, to the proceedings of the press briefing, including through hostile questions, not only questions that are cheering the president's uh, comments. Well, let, let me ask a follow-up about that, actually, because it, it's a sort of an odd situation. We're not used to this quite this kind of, uh, of what appears to be uh, discrimination openly against particular media outlets. But of course, when we talk about the president and we talk about the White House uh, press room, there's discrimination that happens all the time, right? The, there are uh, only certain outlets the White House gives exclusive interviews to. Um, the president decides who, asks, who gets to ask questions and in what order um, people get to ask questions. So if you had a, if you had a doctrine that simply said you may not discriminate uh, against certain news organizations or on the basis of who you like and who you don't like, how is this situation um, Put, put, put to one side the due process question, right? So they provide due process. They say, Jim Acosta, the reason we did what we did was because um, uh, we don't like you, um, and uh, you, here's your notice, here's your hearing. Um, you get to con contest that. You lose. Um, at some point, you do have to confront what kind of, what kind of forum this is, right? Yeah, you do, and, and it's uh, a lot of this starts out in favor, as it were, of a president. Now, this one, not for the first time, managed to do it in the way most likely to let him lose a case. Uh, uh, but it doesn't have to be that way. I mean, it, it seems to me clear that the president doesn't have to have press conferences. It seems to me uh, clear he could do that. Uh, uh, there are a lot of things that the president has, even under a pretty broad First Amendment reading, a great deal of authority over. Uh, he doesn't have to have press conferences. He can leak to whoever he wants. He can call on whoever he wants. And he, they can make rules which limit questions as they appear to have uh, to one question per person. They can make rules saying no follow-ups. I don't think any court would set aside uh, uh, any of those rules. I mean, the reason that in the time after the promulgation and release of these rules that there are still follow-up questions uh, of Sarah Sanders, uh, uh, for the most part, uh, is that there's no objection to them. So, I mean, this is not, the First Amendment does not, in a circumstance like this, provide anything like uh, a full open door. Members of the public in general are not invited. It's members of the press uh, who are. Uh, and the primary way that uh, the public will get informed is that if the president sufficiently abused his or her power, 
uh, journalists would stop coming. I suppose, for example, the president only called on a few conservative journalists. There would be a press revolt. Uh, and I don't believe it would take long before the larger press entities would say and try to live by what they're saying. We're not going to come anymore if all you're going to do is to call on A and B and, and C. So uh, this situation, I think, is one which is at least more likely to be worked out by political, cultural, relationship, uh, uh, public opinion uh, reasons uh, as it is uh, by the force of law. I think it's a good example of uh, the kind of blending of constitutional law and political norms. And, you know, I think many people have had a realization in the past two years that many of our, what we think of as cherished constitutional traditions are in fact no more than norms. Um, and may not be safeguarded by constitutional doctrine, um, and the doctrine only takes you so far. I mean, I would say that you know, there, there, um, it's true that the you know uh, the president could or the White House could limit those briefings in a way that would be um, you know all but useless to the press, or even just abandon them altogether. To the extent it does have rules, though, it is bound to enforce them in a viewpoint neutral way. So, if for example, everyone asks. Uh, follow-up questions, but only CNN gets kicked out for asking a follow-up question, um, that might be a violation of uh, the First Amendment's requirement that any rules in a public forum be uh, uh, enforced in a viewpoint-neutral way. But short of those sorts of violations, um, the president could do a lot to uh, undermine actual equal opportunity once you're in the room, um, but it would have a hard time, you know, um, making the room itself uh, you know, tilted toward one type of outlet or another. Uh, well, I, well I take an example, though. Suppose President Obama had chosen, as he did not, not to call on anyone from Fox News. Yeah. Or, or suppose President Trump made a decision, as he may well make, not to call on anyone from CNN. Uh, is there a legal remedy for that? I, I don't think the courts are going to be eager uh, to say that this is not content neutral. It's not content neutral. It's content rooted. And I still think the courts would be unlikely to intervene. I, I think you're right about that. I, I, Dean, and then but I, I think it, is, rea yeah, it is really important for all of the complexity of First Amendment law, and many thanks to Daniel for trying to summarize it. Um, the Supreme Court has unanimously, repeatedly stressed that the bedrock principle, and that was its phrase, the bedrock principle underlying that whole complex body of law is viewpoint neutrality. Government, above all else, must not favor or disfavor particular viewpoints, and it may not cite pretextual reasons, such as national security concerns in the nation case. And I think court, if, I, I mean, I'm not an experienced litigator, but in terms of the First Amendment principles, I think a court would be very suspicious about singling out a press outlet that has repeatedly been attacked by the president expressly because of its viewpoint. I'm going to take a, an academic point of privilege here uh, and simply say uh, uh, um, we often group together viewpoint discrimination as something that is uniquely 
problematic under the First Amendment and content discrimination. Um, much of First Amendment doctrine lumps those things together. We might wish to think, and this may come up again in the course of the conversation, we might wish to think of those situations in which content discrimination and viewpoint discrimination have to be thought of as differently, right? So different kinds of media outlets versus the viewpoint those media outlets are expressing um, is plausibly something we should care about um, in this context and think about um, whether or to what degree we want to allow um, discrimination along, along those lines. Uh, I want to actually stick with Alex briefly uh, and ask, I promise this won't be all about Trump. Um, uh, there's, well, there are lots of, of other things to talk about. Um, but um, given that uh, Alex is uh, an attorney with the Knight Institute, uh, the Knight First Amendment Institute at, at Columbia, uh, a lawsuit brought by Knight, uh, er, I guess earlier, was it this year? It was, was last it? year. Last year, okay, yeah. 2017. Uh, challenging uh, the president's uh, blocking of people from Twitter. Successful lawsuit. Uh, far. So far, right. Um, and I, I guess I want to ask, um, this, is, this is all sort of new <laughs> um, to First Amendment um, doctrine. Uh, President Obama uh, tweeted, but didn't block people as far as I know. Um, the president had this account before he was president. What, what in this context makes him a state actor who we, we can sort of treat um, as the government for purposes of, of his Twitter account? Right. So, so just briefly, a, a quick overview is that the lawsuit was filed on behalf of individuals, seven individuals who uh, President Trump had blocked from his Twitter account um, based on, you know, apparently on their views. They uh, tweeted critical tweets, not obscene ones or profane ones, but critical ones of, of the president's policy, and shortly thereafter they were blocked. And we argued in court uh, that his uh, Twitter account, the, the comment forum associated with his Twitter account, is a uh, designated public forum along the lines that I was discussing before, such that he could not exclude people from it on the basis of their viewpoint. And a uh, district court judge in New York, Judge Buckwald, agreed with us, and we are now defending that ruling in the Second Circuit. Um, one of the key questions that came up during the case is, well, this was President Trump's personal account prior to his assumption of office. Why can you hold him accountable for it under the First Amendment, which typically applies only to government actors? And the argument that we made is that uh, he's using his account in a way that is functionally governmental in nature. Uh, and that there are uh, plenty of circumstances where the conduct of government officials is analyzed in a functional way to determine whether they are acting more as government officials in a particular capacity or, as more, or more as personal individuals in the capacity. And if you study his Twitter account, um, it seems pretty clear that he's using it in a governmental capacity. Uh, he uses it to announce decisions about administrative policy for the first time. Uh, he, he, for example, has fired people using his Twitter account. He's announced changes in policy, for example, the ban on, uh, uh, on uh, transgender individuals in the military was announced for the first time on Twitter. Uh, he has uh, a White House staff assisting him in running the, his Twitter account, so he's using government resources, U.S. taxpayer dollars, to run uh, his Twitter account. Uh, he considers statements from his Twitter account to be official statements of the White House. Uh, he has told several courts that his... Um, his uh, uh, subordinates have responded to congressional inquiries about official White House positions by pointing to statements made on his Twitter account. So we think for all those reasons that his Twitter account is more properly characterized now as governmental, not personal. In the same way, for example, that if you were a government official and you use your personal email uh, to conduct government business, if somebody filed a FOIA request to the government asking for your governmental email, 
uh, FOIA officers would almost certainly ask you for those emails and consider those to be um, responsive to a FOIA request, even though they were nominally sent on a private uh, email server. So it's, it's a, a similar argument to that. Such a fanciful example. I can't imagine <laughs> what, you, what you might be referring to. Um, uh, Nadine, I, I'm gonna, I want to follow up with you, um, since I know you've thought a lot about, uh, about social media uh, and a lot about um, how it interacts with, with freedom of, of speech. Uh, and there's a lot, obviously, a, a whole, we could have a whole different other forum on the issues that that raises. Uh, but I wanted to ask about a specific issue, and this also relates to, uh, Nadine has a recent book out uh, on hate speech called Hate, right? Mm -hmm. Um, uh, so available in local bookstores. But I have to mention the subtitle, Why We Should Resist It with Free Speech, Not Censorship. So, so along those lines, um, so uh, the recent shooting uh, at the uh, Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, the shooter, alleged, alleged shooter, um, was spent a lot of time on Gab, uh, which is a social media site um, that has um, looser standards for content moderation than some of the more mainstream, mainstream um, I, I believe that it's completely open-ended and does not engage, purports not to engage in any moderation at all. Literally, anything goes. Right, so that, that's become their brand, right? So anything goes. And so it attracts a certain um, uh, segment of the, of the speech population, the speech community, um, uh, including lots of hate speech mm -hmm. uh, that goes on there. Uh, and after the, after the shooting, so Gab uh, had to go offline for a while uh, because a number of uh, of the kind of support services for platforms, so um, a, a domain a registry a company uh, uh, and so forth, uh, refused to do business with them, essentially boycotted them, and they had to find different, a different hosting service and, uh, and so forth. And I guess I want to, 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 I want to see if you uh, want to reflect on the kind of power that that involves, right, given that these are not governmental actors. In this case, they found another host, right, but one can Im could imagine um, a company with more market power sort of controlling the, the speech environment in a way that problematic, question mark? I think we know uh, one or two examples that do have a great deal of market power. First of all, uh, to repeat a point that I know some, I see some students here who might not yet have studied uh, the First Amendment, it does literally bind only government officials, with a few exceptions that are mostly not relevant here. So the social media companies as private sector entities not only have no First Amendment obligations to protect the free speech rights of anybody else, moreover, they have their own First Amendment rights, just along with traditional media, to make editorial decisions, content-based decisions, and even viewpoint-based decisions about what speech will be permitted and what will not be permitted. So I'm not making a constitutional argument, although I know some people have tried to argue that these companies should be seen as state actors. I personally would oppose that, that argument, and I think it's not likely to succeed. However, looking at the practical impact of their power, as Jamal's question asks us to do, I 
I completely agree with the Supreme Court when last year it unanimously uh, stated just as a fact that the most important forum for the exchange of information and ideas, not only among all of us and our friends in a social way, but also among all of us and our government officials and candidates is online media and in particular social media. So for practical purposes, if we care about having robust freedom of speech, we have to be very concerned about how these powerful private sector entities are wielding their power. And I'm going to quote uh, not a First Amendment lawyer, but the head of one of these companies um, themselves, the head of a company called Cloudflare, which last year, after, after a long history of proudly providing services, I believe it was to protect against what's called directed denial of service attacks, where people People are trying to interfere on an operational level with your communications online. So it's in the background, it's part of the deep infrastructure that makes messaging possible on the internet. Uh, Cloudflare had uh, proudly said, we are not going to engage in content or viewpoint discrimination because we do think we should be like a conduit and let people make their own decisions about what they're going to see or say or not see or not say. Uh, but after Charlottesville, when the Daily Stormer white supremacist uh, folks were bragging that they still were able to use Cloudflare services, Matthew Prince, who is the executive, uh, the chief executive of Cloudflare, uh, woke up very angry, very disturbed, and he decided that Cloudflare would, for the first time, kick somebody off its services based on their reviled viewpoint. And so there went the Daily Stormer. Matthew Prince himself, to his credit, uh, rude his decision. Not that he wouldn't have made it, but he himself understood the downside. He said, you know, I woke up one day in a bad mood and decided that these people could no longer have access to the internet for all practical purposes. No one should have that power. And I would say, suppose somebody else wakes up the next day and they decide that Black Lives Matter is too dangerous because certain government officials have uh, said Black Lives Matter should be investigated as a domestic terrorist organization. Other people have accused Black Lives Matter speakers of uh, instigating assassinations of police officers in Dallas. It is too much power for any private sector entity to have, uh, just as it's too much power for any government official to have. I don't agree with any of that. Uh, how can that be? Nadine and I almost always agree. Uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with even a powerful entity like these and exercising what in a different context we would call editorial judgment. Uh, that, that if uh, an entity decides that it doesn't want to have Der Sturmer, if the people, when they wake up, make that decision, uh, or if they decide 
as most of the large ones have, we don't want racist, overtly racist speech. Uh, it's not a First Amendment argument. I, I know Nadine has already acknowledged that. But beyond that, uh, I think it is a vindication of editorial freedom uh, for these entities uh, to make their own decisions about what to carry. But Floyd, now, wouldn't you they be are concerned large about and powerful and therefore subject to antitrust laws and other laws because yes. of their size. Yeah. But I don't think that their size in and of itself ought to lead them to simply abdicate the uh, decision-making authority of what they carry. I, Floyd, I think you and I are more in agreement than was clear because I'm just saying there's a problem. The solution is definitely not any kind of government regulation through, you know, a First Amendment kind of argument. I think antitrust might be uh, a remedy. In my ideal world, there would be options. There would be robust competition, uh, which I guess Gab et al. are trying to uh, implement by saying, if you don't want moderated content, we're going to give you an unmoderated option. I wish there were many, many more robust uh, 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 options where each of us could choose uh, a social media platform that we thought had appropriate standards. And I should say um, that where the standards are transparent, where there is accountability for how they are uh, defining their standards, how they're enforcing their standards, where people who are blocked or denied access have some kind of fundamental due process and a right of appeal. There actually, there actually is such a model out there. Yeah. The, one, the difficulties you know, many of these alternative social media companies face is the network effect. You want to be where your friends are, and if your friends aren't on the new service, you're not going to go there. The main one that I know of is one called Mastodon, which has two million users. It's a distributed social media network. Anyone can set up their own Mastodon community that connects with other communities, and each community can decide their own content moderation rules, and you can have the full free speech version, the no hate speech, the no this or that which is kind of interesting, but it hasn't taken off for the, because of the network effect. But I want to say one other thing. I, I think it's worth distinguishing. So th there are two ways in which the First Amendment question, I think, generally would arise when it comes to some of these companies, like the social media companies or, or others. One is if somebody brings a direct First Amendment argument against these companies and argues that they should be considered to be state actors, um, and you know, that kind of claim is going to run into uh, a brick wall of, for, you know, of past First Amendment precedent limiting its application to the government. Um, but the other way in which uh, a First Amendment uh, case may arise is if the government tries to regulate and argues that it has a sufficiently strong interest to regulate in a particular way, and then the First Amendment claim would be brought by the companies in, you know, arguing that that kind of law is unconstitutional. And I think for that type of claim, where you're seeing government regulation, it's worth distinguishing between the different types of services. Because I think there are some services that may be more amenable to government regulation than others. So to give you an example, I think maybe the one for which there may be the strongest argument for government regulation is what Jamal mentioned, domain name service registrars. So you may not know this, but if you want to be on the internet, if you want to have a website on the internet, you need to have an IP address. That is, the, that is an address online. It's the equivalent to your physical real-world address. And if you don't have one, you cannot host a, web, a website online. But those IP addresses are given out, they're doled out by a private group of intergovernmental organizations um, that decide whether you have an IP address or not. It's the equivalent of the postal service um, for the online world. And they play uh, you know, a, a, the most basic infrastructural uh, role you can imagine online. They decide whether a website can or cannot exist. Um, and 
there are not many instances that I can think of in which domain name registrars have denied people IP addresses, you know, addresses online, because of the content or viewpoint they express or wish to express in their websites. But if they started to, I would think there might be pressure for governments to limit the extent to which um, these, you know, uh, most basic gatekeepers to the online world could exercise that kind of authority by, for example, requiring neutrality, re requiring neutrality in, in the uh, licensing of IP addresses um, in the same way that the government regulates uh, very significantly access to, you know, the tubes themselves through telecom regulation and the like. So it's worth distinguishing between the different services that are played. Cloudflare operates at yeah, a different level. They provide um, a service against distributed denial of service attacks, but they also do content distribution, which makes sure your website is available to, to others. And there's a whole stack, a you know, range of services offered by people. And at the top, you might think of you know, the people exercising the most editorial judgment would be individual users deciding what they want to post. Just below that might be the platforms who are deciding to host that speech directly as kind of part of their community, like Facebook and Twitter. Um, but the expressive kind of components of the services, I think, uh, uh, differs depending on where you are in that stack. And the further down you go, the more analogous it is to a public utility, which right. would not be allowed to deny service to even the most odious hate monger. Right. Uh, I, I want to, um, uh, did, Daniel, did you want to weigh in? Yes, I think we're avoiding the underlying fundamental problem of uh, hate speech. That's what we're really talking about on these outlets, that the new technology has um, change the format and the way it's done, but um, what if uh, some, somebody on the internet talks about the Holocaust and says Hitler didn't do enough of a good job, or uh, says slavery ought to be uh, brought back? Uh, at what point does government or society uh, have a right, if at all, to limit uh, that kind of uh, discussion? Uh, some other countries don't have um, the same First Amendment uh, we have, and um, I don't think it's irrational to have some uh, limits on it. We just chose a certain path, but it presents uh, problems for us. You know, one, one of the nice things about this president, he gives us a lot of stuff to talk about in the First Amendment uh, area, and uh, we can make America great by making the First Amendment great. But uh, there are these underlying issues that don't go away, and we can talk about antitrust laws, we can talk about uh, access, but what do you do with that fundamental problem when people are going to react? Wasn't that really what Charlottesville uh, was about? That horrible things were being said and people responded to what was being said in a natural, normal, expected reaction. Doesn't government have some, not only right, but obligation to um, deal with something like that. And those are the hard questions. Those are which value is more important? Which value do you want to protect? Hate speech under the guise of its freedom of speech or uh, preventing uh, civil disorder and um, response on the way back. And I think that's I think that's, that's a, I think that's a false yeah, choice. I, I, know, I know you want to chime in yeah. on this, uh, but I wanted to bring in, in Carmelin as well because well, what I was going to say is, what, you know, what I think is interesting about that is there are clearly areas 
of basic areas of living that we've chosen as a society that we're going to regulate speech in, right? And that's what our anti-discrimination protections are based on. So like some of those frequent areas, we've decided in the area of employment, where there's an employment relationship, we're going to regulate speech. Uh, in many instances where there's a housing, you know, a, a tenant housing provider relationship, we're going to regulate speech. Uh, where a customer is working vis-a-vis -vis a, a public accommodation or a business, we've decided that we're going to regulate hate speech. And those are for what I think most people would think of as you know, competing, good competing public policy reasons, right? Allowing people to live in these spaces, these very basic spaces of, of life, uh, free from discrimination or some type of harassment. And, uh, you know, what I think is interesting, and I always, I said this last year and I say it this year, I'm, as the kind of non resident, non-First Amendment uh, uh, expert on the panel, it's always interesting for me to hear these conversations play out because I think that there are ways in which our laws have not yet completely caught up with the way people practically experience life you know, in, in real time, like to, to Nadine's point of remembering what is the, what are the parameters of First Amendment and thinking of this as really about government action. I would bet that if you walk down the street and you ask most people walking around, if they think of the First Amendment as cabined in that space, they would probably say no. And so there are many ways in which, in the context, especially these days, when we're looking nationally at how um, acts of hate violence, of discrimination, or hate crimes are increasing, and they've been on the increase since 2016. If you, that's like national, nationally known across um, across different jurisdictions. There are situations that are not covered by the First Amendment that people automatically think to themselves, hey, that's a First Amendment violation. Why isn't the First Amendment kicking in here? Why isn't there a lawsuit here? Even if you look at, you know, Twitter recently. Uh, released a policy where they said that um, they were adding as part of their, their code of conduct uh, that banning the, the use of dead naming and the use of misgendering, mm -hmm. uh, which basically means that, you know, for uh, transgender people, uh, they were basically banning when people were uh, using uh, uh, the name that was associated with that person at birth or they were using uh, the wrong pronouns when, when talking about a person. And there had been some reaction as to whether or not this was a First Amendment violation. And just like watching some of the, um, some of the blog posts on it, hey, that's a First Amendment violation, but not realizing, of course, the extent to which that happens. I think that in, in, in the United States, in New York City, there's a very strong uh, ideal about anti-discrimination and categories of protection and what that means, especially when we think so much about like the diversity of the city or we think about the diversity that we have nationally. And that oftentimes for people butts up against what they often think of as First Amendment rights. I wanted to uh, I want to I want to follow up on on this point and take it also kind of take it national. But did you did you want to have a quick re response to? I'll wait Daniel? for your okay. next question. Uh, so I, I wanted to to ask about uh, uh, Carmelin talked about public accommodations and different settings in which we might think about speech. I'll call speech adjacent acts um, in in different ways. And I, I wanted to take it back to the Supreme Court's recent decision in the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case. Uh, some of you may be familiar with it. Um, some of you um, uh, may not. Uh, I, I could, I could um, ex explain it myself, but I, I don't, Floyd, do you want to take Rude. this one? Uh, and just kind of 
What were the, what were the speech uh, related acts? In it's that a case? great case. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of case you would want to make up, not just for a law school exam, but for high school students. Uh, 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 a gay couple in Colorado uh, at a time when Colorado already had uh, legislation uh, protecting against discrimination against gays go into a, gay, a cake shop in which the proprietor of the shop, uh, uh, I don't mean to put it critically, I was about to say, fancies himself, uh, is, is the creator uh, of wedding cakes, which he makes only after interviewing you, getting to know you, and then after all of that, making the cake that is just right for you and his artistic vision uh, of you and of the wedding. He also had on his shelves cakes that anyone could just walk in and buy. Gay couple comes in, says we would like you to make a cake for us. The answer is no. I believe, I, I, I don't want to be associated with a gay wedding, which I think is contrary to God's commands as set forth in the Bible. Uh, and I won't do it. Uh, it's a shop open to the public, et cetera, et cetera. The Colorado authorities enforcing their anti-discrimination laws said this violated the law. They can't choose your customer, can't treat people differently based on this distinction which the law barred uh, a different or differential treatment. Uh, based on uh, Colorado Supreme Court denied their equivalent of certiorari. U.S. Supreme Court took the case. <coughs> Tons of, of amici briefs from uh, uh, groups defending, on the one hand, anti-discrimination legislation, fearful that anybody can wind up just saying, well, it's contrary to my religious views. I'm, I won't obey it. And on the other side, defending what they viewed as religious freedom or freedom of speech. Uh, and that case went to the Supreme Court. It was argued. Uh, the First Amendment world trembled uh, as we awaited the decision. And the decision was one which did not address any of the basic issues that we were all waiting to hear about. Uh, instead, the court, in an opinion of Justice Kennedy, who probably I would say the most First Amendment-oriented jurist, perhaps, perhaps in the country's history. Justice Kennedy wrote an opinion saying, in effect, this is a really interesting issue. But what we have found when we examine the record is that the Colorado board that decided that it was a violation was essentially anti-religious. They mocked religion in their internal discussion uh, about this. They said, uh, this, this is the, religion is always the excuse for misconduct and mistreating people. And on that basis, the Supreme Court, by a seven to two vote, said, or concluded, uh, that the baker won the case. But of course, we don't care about the baker, we care about the law, don't we? What, what's the answer to the question the court didn't address? 
Justice Kennedy did say this. I'll read you one sentence. He said, as this court observed in such and such case, the First Amendment ensures that religious organizations and persons are given proper protection as they seek to teach the principles that are so fulfilling and so central to their lives and faiths. Nevertheless, while those religious and philosophical objections are protected, it is a general rule that such objections do not allow business owners and other actors in the economy and our society to deny protected people equal access to goods and services under a neutral and generally applicable public accommodations law. So I think the general betting has been that the next time such a case came to the court, and there's one already in which a cert petition was filed yesterday from the state of Oregon, uh, that the court would probably side with the state enforcing its anti-discrimination uh, laws. But, uh, you know, we can't be sure of that. And of course, Justice Kennedy is no longer there. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh has taken his place. Uh, that's another topic we can turn to. But, but uh, uh, it is, I guess it is fair to say it is uncertain, but I, I do believe that, that, that the people who took almost literally that second sentence I read to you as a signpost that when the court had to decide this issue, that it would decide that the anti-discrimination laws uh, could not be overcome uh, by uh, a simple assertion of religious faith. Uh, certainly the anti-segregation laws could not have been overcome by someone saying in good faith and for religious reasons, uh, I don't want to serve anybody who is black. We know, we, we know that that is a, an argument not worth making. One of the questions raised in this case is how different is this case from that? Well, let me, let me complicate that just slightly. Um, by, so one of the interesting questions in this case is, what, is the, what does it mean to be discriminating on the basis of uh, sexual orientation versus engaging in some other kind of discriminatory act. So the, the baker in the Colorado case, his claim was not that because of my religious faith, I may exclude um, a gay couples from uh, buying anything in my shop. He said, I can't, he said, I, under the law, at least as the case presented itself to the court, uh, under the law of Colorado, I may not discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation, but that's not what I'm doing here. Uh, because I would serve anything to a same-sex couple except a custom-made cake for their wedding because I do not participate in weddings of this sort. Right? In, so, indeed, he went farther, and one of the really interesting issues in the case was, he said, look, this is a work of art. You wouldn't compel a painter to, to make a painting of someone. Uh, you, you wouldn't think of making a musician draft music, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I mean, my, my own view is, is that uh, if uh, uh, someone held himself out as a portrait painter and puts a sign on the window of a store and says $500 to paint your portrait, 
and uh, a Latino American walks in and the answer is, I, I don't do Latinos, that violates the law and is not protected by the Constitution. That's what I think. If you choose to do business with the public, which nobody is compelling you to do, and you become a so-called public accommodation, you must serve all comers. That's such an ancient common law principle that pre-existed the First Amendment. And this really illustrates the excellent points that Carmelin was making, that our law really is very sensible. When speech goes beyond just conveying an idea that we hate and consider hateful, but actually has a direct impact in terms of denying somebody equal access to services, to housing, uh, to employment, when it becomes targeted harassment when it, or bullying, when it becomes a threat, a true threat. These are all examples in addition to the intentional incitement of imminent violence that Daniel described, where our law very sensibly says when speech directly causes certain imminent, specific, serious harm, then government can and may punish the speech. But the mere fact that it's hated and hateful and might indirectly lead to some violence in the future gives government far too much license to punish ideas that are unpopular. And that is why civil rights protesters were uh, suppressed in this country. That is why human rights advocates are suppressed in European countries and why we should not have any illusion that if we went in the direction that European countries have gone in, that those of us who champion human rights would be happy with the result. Well, let, let me actually ask about a European country, uh, because there's a, there's a somewhat parallel case to Masterpiece Cake Shop that's maybe a, maybe a hair closer to the line of being protected expression. And in fact, the UK Supreme Court held that it was protected expression. So uh, this is a case in which a baker uh, refuses to bake a cake uh, that has, I support same-sex uh, marriage as, as the message on the cake, right? So um, it wasn't a matter of I won't um, uh, bake cakes for certain people. It was I just won't put that message on the cake because I don't believe in that message. But, so um, do you have a sense, Carmelin, about how that would be treated under the human rights law of New York City? Uh, well, again, I mean, for, for our law to kick in, we'd be looking at whether uh, a member of the public was treated less well. So the New York statute speaks to someone being treated less well because of their membership in a protected class. If it was a, uh, you know, kind of a, a uniform ban on doing something for every single person who walked into that store, probably a, the anti-discrimination law would not apply. But if it were selective versus, you know, certain members of the public versus another, based on protected category, then sure, our law would kick in. I mean, I think, I think what is also unfortunate about what happened um, in Masterpiece is it became this issue of gay rights being um, pitted against religious freedom, right? Um, and there are certainly circumstances that one could foresee where someone's religious rights would abut against somebody else's religious rights in a situation very similar to the masterpiece 
um, cake shop situation where somebody has said, you know, religiously, I believe in a, you know, polytheistic religion and I want to celebrate it X, Y, Z way, and the cake shop owner could say, I don't believe in that, that's against my religious values, and so I'm not going to make it, right? Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting how that case ended up and how it ended up kind of just, uh, you know, diverted into this issue of the neutrality of the commission, because people often ask about if that situation were to occur here in New York City and, and how would the Commission on Human Rights treat that sort of case. Here, I think, in New York City, we have such a rich tradition of uh, not just championing the rights of um, LGBTQ communities, but also championing the rights of um, uh, folks based on their religion, religious accommodation-related issues, as well as folks who are generally considered to be religious minorities in the city. And so here, there's a situation where the commission has been out there very loud about those two things. The neutrality issue would not likely be an issue, and so for us, it would boiled down to if the person who, who was coming in as a customer to that place of public accommodation was treated in a way that would be considered less well than somebody else based on a protected category. But my reaction is that it would violate the First Amendment uh, to apply it in this case, that if the cake maker were, were asked or told by the person who wanted to bake the cake, I want you to write something religious. I want you to write something blessing this wedding. I don't think you can make them do it. And I think the courts would say the First Amendment protects the cake maker in that case. And that's a, a basic First Amendment principle that we haven't yet talked about, which is just as the government doesn't have the power to suppress a message you want to convey, it has even less power to force you to convey a message you do not wish to convey. That was uh, the holding of the famous uh, Jehovah's Witness flag salute cases from the World War II era. So I want to I get back to the court uh, and, and take it forward. I, Floyd very tantalizingly um, uh, mentioned uh, the new Justice Kavanaugh. Uh, and the, the, the court in recent years, and Justice Kennedy has certainly been part of this, has been fairly bullish I would say, on, uh, on free speech. Just this past term, uh, the Janus case, uh, which said this is a, a compelled speech case, just as uh, Nadine was talking about, uh, you can't compel uh, non-members of a public sector union to, to pay agency fees to support the union's uh, negotiation. That would be compelled speech. Um, the uh, uh, NIFLA versus uh, Becerra case out of California, uh, which is also a compelled speech case uh, in which um, California had required certain disclosures of so-called uh, crisis pregnancy centers, uh, and the, the court said that that was uh, a violation. Uh, and I I'm, I'm, uh, uh, wanted to see if, uh, Floyd, if you had a, a view uh, or had developed a view on uh, where Justice Kavanaugh might be on a, a range of uh, free speech issues and how, how, how his uh, replacement of Justice Kennedy might affect the court. Mm -hmm. uh, Judge Kavanaugh, uh, has been a uh, generally a very strong First Amendment supporter uh, in his jurisprudence. And as I answer this, I want to distinguish between two sorts of First Amendment cases, in both of which he's been on the First Amendment side, but in the second category of which uh, he would have a lot more, he does have a lot more uh, differences of opinions 
with uh, liberal or progressive jurists than otherwise. But in some cases, uh, National Park Services requires permits uh, to, uh, uh, to, to do anything near Mount Rushmore National Memorial. Uh, he writes an opinion where a religious group wants to hand out religious tracts next to the memorial, saying that the, uh, there's great overbreath, great overstatement uh, in the language of the rules, and strikes them down, allowing the religious group to hand out the, the tracts. In libel cases, he hasn't had many, but the ones he has had, he has been pro-defendant, or I would like to think, pro-First Amendment uh, in his rulings uh, uh, on, on at least two occasions. Um, in areas involving uh, new media, uh, the, the uh, decision-making with respect to, for example, net neutrality, uh, he has had a position which uh, on the DC circuit has been if not extreme, about as far as you can go in saying that net neutrality is unconstitutional on its face and in all circumstances. Uh, the uh, uh, DC Circuit uh, had upheld net neutrality, which is adopted by statute or rule of the FCC, uh, not, not as a constitutional norm, but adopted it uh, 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 in a case, uh, uh, a very important case, as to which an en banc, the whole court, all the, all the judges were asked to weigh in. And he dissented in that case from the refusal of the court, the higher court, the, all, all the judges, to rehear it, writing in very strong language that the First Amendment demands that government employ a more laissez-faire regime, saying that it violates basic principles of a case called Buckley versus Vallejo, which is a case involving financing of elections. But a line of that case, which he characterized as, quote, one of the most important sentences in First Amendment history was as follows. The concept that government may restrict the speech of some elements of our society in order to enhance the relative voice of others is wholly foreign to the First Amendment. We should uh, say that that was written by Justice Brennan, revered liberal. I, I, I yeah, think it was written by Justice Stewart, but, oh. but uh, it, it's an opinion. Joined by Brennan? Justice yes. Brennan joined, uh, and it is a very controversial and very important a statement. It is a statement on which the Citizens United case is based, on which the Buckley case, which limited the power of the government to bar uh, expenditures by individuals, uh, was, was based. So in areas like this, there is more of a traditional liberal conservative split than in an area such as libel where the law is pretty clear and very protective of speech, or of the first example I cited, you know, uh, uh, how far can the government go in limiting who can show up where with a, with a leaflet or, or the like, where again, the law is very, very protective. 
in this area, in the area of what sort of regulations are allowed of the, the, the running of the internet uh, and the like, uh, uh, Justice Kavanaugh is, with all, in all likelihood, going to be consistent with the opinion that I just read to you. One more compelled speech case, so, uh, sort of interesting. Uh, the American Meat Institute went to court protesting uh, regulations on meat packaging which required the meat companies to put down what country the meat came from, if it came from a country abroad. Uh, the meat company uh, objected to that, saying you shouldn't be able to force us to put that uh, on our uh, product. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh, this was a deeply divided ruling of the Court of Appeals, uh, said that on the one hand, the government doesn't have what he called a free pass to spread its preferred messages on the backs of others. But, he then said, he would vote to affirm the limitations based on the historically rooted interest of supporting American manufacturers farmers and ranchers as they compete with foreign ones. So therefore, sustaining the requirement that, that, that the location, if it's foreign, have to be set forth to further the interests of American uh, meat packers, which leads to my, my final uh, assertion prediction. Uh, Judge Kavanaugh has been, uh, across the board, I would say, highly protective of First Amendment rights. When it comes to other constitutional provisions, uh, the American Civil Liberties Union has said that he has, as a judge, a well-developed record of showing, quote, extreme deference to presidential claims for a national security uh, and that is a fair, I think, characterization of his decisions in more than one case involving claims of individuals, prisoners at Guantanamo, and the like, where he has generally come out against their articulation that they're being mistreated uh, or the like. The First Amendment question is, will he apply that deference to the executive branch in a First Amendment context? Uh, when an Espionage Act action is brought, if it is, let's say, against a publisher, and the government says that there, there's irreparable harm as a result of publication of certain secrets, Snowden-like secrets, for example, uh, will he say, uh, consistent with his First Amendment body of work, that, that we should lean very heavily on the side of allowing speech? Uh, or will he say this is an area where the executive branch has particular expertise to which we should defer as a court? Uh, to put it, if I may, in more personal terms, uh, when the Pentagon Papers case came up, and I, I did not argue it, but it was, I was a young attorney uh, working on the case, uh, when that case came up, the government said, the New York Times publishing the Pentagon Papers will irreparably cripple 
American national defense, imperil American prisoners of war being held in Vietnam, uh, and the like. The courts looked at the documents and said, we're just not persuaded. There's nothing close enough to real national security for us to agree that a prior restraint, an injunction against speech by a newspaper can be sustained. That was a six to three vote of a court long gone. Uh, and where uh, Justice Kavanaugh would be in a case like that is something uh, we cannot know and less than until it happens. Uh, I wanted to, um I wanted to take up one more kind of broad area of conversation before turning uh, to questions from the audience. Uh, and that's, uh, Justice Floyd talked about something that was close to his own um, experience. I, I want, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk a little bit about um, university campuses um, and the various speech issues that have arisen in that uh, context. Uh, there, uh, again, as with thinking about social media, there are any number of uh, issues that one could focus on. Just recently, um, the, the, the most recent news cycle uh, involved Mark uh, Lamont Hill uh, uh, being in some, apparently some jeopardy um, from Temple University because of uh, statements that he made uh, regarding uh, Israel and Palestine. Uh, but I wanted to, uh, uh, to focus more on uh, issues involving uh, campus speakers uh, and uh, so-called uh, provocative speech, um, uh, or provocative speakers uh, invited by certain groups, and the provocations that that they uh, uh, that, give, that that gives rise to um, from um, their opponents. Uh, and maybe uh, I'll get at that by asking uh, how we should think about the university in this context. Um, uh, should we think about university? I'll put this to Nadine. Um, who is also an, an academic, uh, uh, should we think about universities as kind of uh, open public fora in the, in the nature of a Hyde Park uh, or a speaker's corner? Um, or should we think about universities as some other kind of institution where we might, even in the public university setting, might uh, wish to allow um, certain kinds of ordered or curated regulation? It, the university consists of different elements, and the answer is different depending on which element of the university you're looking at. So uh, a dormitory, should be, tr which is a functional home, should be treated differently from a classroom, which should be treated differently from an open public space on campus. Very similar to comments that were made by my distinguished co-panelists about uh, the public forum doctrine, the answer is very functional. You look at the particular use, intended dedicated use, of that element on campus. So to take the uh, element of the campus that is the closest to a traditional public forum, such as streets and parks. Most universities have malls, open spaces, green spaces, where they uh, traditionally allow anybody to speak to express any idea. In fact, as a result of recent controversies, I've learned that a number of campuses have what I consider to be extremely open forum policies where basically they allow even 
internal spaces at the university for a fairly nominal rental fee to be used by anybody, even if the person doesn't have a connection to the university. Once you have that kind of policy, then the, for a public university, the viewpoint neutrality principle kicks in, and you may not eliminate somebody on the basis of viewpoint. But I would say no university has an obligation to adopt that kind of policy. Certainly, private universities don't. And some of them have abandoned their prior uh, open door policy uh, in the wake of some controversial speakers. So uh, a university, I think, would be completely within its rights to say that um, there should be some link to the university. There has to be an invitation by a faculty member or by a student group. Group. Uh, when you're talking about classroom, obviously there is a professional responsibility on the part of those who decide, number one, what is included in the curriculum and what's not included in the curriculum. Number two, what's included on the syllabus and not included in the syllabus. Number three, what guest speakers will I invite to my class or not invite. Yes, I suppose in theory a professor has a, a pretty open-ended right uh, to make a wide range of decisions, but we all exercise our judgment and our power to make decisions that are consistent with the education of our students. So I think that there should be um, some educational rationale for and justification for inviting speakers. And if a professor said, I think that this person should not speak in my class because I think on balance my students are not going to learn something, uh, I would defend the professor's own academic freedom to make that determination. Now, I do have to make one important point here, which is I do think that there is significant educational value in hearing certain people whose ideas I consider to be revolting or objectionable. If the person holds, for example, significant political power or has had uh, significant influence on public policy, I think it's really important to, and, and educationally justifiable, as well as consistent with free speech principles, to give the students an opportunity to hear that person and to interrogate that person and to debate that person. Then on the most extreme, uh, less free speech example, I would say if you're talking about a dormitory, which is analogous to somebody's home, I think that uh, the university would be justified in adopting rules that, um, neutral, you know, in a viewpoint neutral way, uh, maybe content-based uh, rules that would uh, preserve an area of quiet and repose as the Supreme Court has recognized the special claim of privacy in our homes uh, and allowed more regulation of speech in that context for that end. But haven't we seen over the last several years a, a rising intolerance to opposing viewpoints? Uh, isn't the real problem on campus when a speaker is invited by a college club or organization and students don't like that speaker or what that speaker 
uh, is saying, um, and in the classroom, the concept of trigger warnings, that if a, a particular book or topic is offensive to students in the class, that uh, they should be told ahead of time and they can either leave the classroom or uh, do something else. There's a, uh, perhaps an oversensitivity, you know, there's a new book that was recently published called The, the Coddling of the American Mind. And it essentially uh, talks about this, that uh, somehow uh, people are too sensitive, oversensitive, and they, they don't have the, um, the thick skin that they ought to have um, when it comes to opposing viewpoints. And I think the college uh, scene is uh, a place where we see it. I mean, we, we saw it at Middlebury College and uh, in several other schools where students actually shut down speakers who they didn't like. Well, is that what the First Amendment is all, around, all about? Is it the student's right to eliminate someone else's speech rights? the way it ought to go, or, or is something missing in terms of the social development of um, the kind of uh, ability to hear um, people we don't like and opinions we don't like and to say, okay, that's fine. I don't think anybody has seriously argued that there is a First Amendment right to disruptive protest. There is uh, certainly an important First Amendment right to non-disruptive protest to uh, momentarily, briefly, or in a silent way, express your objection to the, the speaker's ideas, uh, but not in a way that prevents a willing audience from hearing the, the overall message. You know, one of the problems here is financial, which is that universities are uh, put to the task of uh, hiring so much security sometimes by speakers generally who've been, who've been invited by students. Uh, I mean, the University of California had one situation just, uh, I don't know, six months ago where they spent $600,000 uh, to, to have enough security to protect one uh, outrageous, and I would say racist, uh, speaker uh, <coughs> who had been invited uh, by a student group uh, to, to appear. And uh, it's the, the, uh, the monetary side of this is getting to be a major problem uh, at universities, uh, and it is one of the reasons that, uh, not the only one, that some of them have been changing their internal rules uh, as Nadine points out, in terms of uh, who gets to choose, who comes, uh, and how they define educational value uh, in making that decision. The one thing is clear is that they can't have a system where you allow students to invite people who are good and bar them when the bad ones invite people whose speech is considered bad. Uh, it, it just doesn't work, and at least in a public university, it's unconstitutional. Yeah, there's, a, there's a general rule against allowing hecklers to impose an effective veto on, um, on speech, which is why a lot of the universities absorb the cost of providing security for controversial speakers. But there's surprisingly no real case law uh, grappling with the question of what do you do when the cost of security bankrupts uh, you know, the, the, the actor that has to provide the, the security. Um, and I guess the practical result is that universities or others will just 
change their policies to avoid having to take on the costs at all. But I, I was just going to note my you know, strong agreement with what Nadine was saying, which is that um, it's a mistake to think of protest as a rejection of free speech values. Protest is itself one of the core free speech, uh, you know, expressive, um, you know, uh, sorts of conduct that, that has existed in this country, um, has a, you know, long and storied tradition, and th there's every reason to respect the right of the protester as much as you respect the right of the speaker. And you know, only in the narrow context where, you know, one threatens to disrupt the other or to silence the voice of the other do you really have to, you know, deal with the competing values. But very often that's not the case. Very often there's protests outside of venues or associated with the venues um, on the campus. And I don't think of that as a rejection of a free speech value. I think of that as a celebration of free speech, a, you know, a performance of free speech. Um, I do think it's a little bit harder when you get inside the venue and somebody wants to shut down um, you know, the, 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 uh, the speech entirely or the speaker entirely. I think then you have to deal with the conflict. And I, uh, I think Nadine set out the right framework for thinking about that. Um, if it is effectively silencing the speaker, then I think university, if they're going to allow students to invite speakers, has an obligation to, uh, uh, to stop the disruption. Um, but I, I don't think you should, uh, I, but I also agree that momentary um, disruption shouldn't qualify as a sort that you get somebody eject, you know, ejected from the, from the forum. Uh, I want to turn to some of the questions that uh, you've all been writing down on your, uh, on your index cards. And I, I actually, uh, there are four of them that are somewhat related to each other. So I, I think I'll, um, I'll just read all four of them and invite uh, comments from uh, from our panelists. Uh, so one, and this is all about regulation of social media, which was um, something that I guess attracted a lot of interest from the audience. Uh, so one is, is there any regulatory framework you can envision that would be sustainable that, that, that could impose a fairness doctrine on internet providers? Um, uh, so the fairness doctrine uh, uh, would provide that a kind of both sides um, requirement. Uh, and this is a related question, maybe a premise of the, the first question. Are Facebook, Twitter, and similar social media platforms utilities? Uh, are they publishers? Are they something else? And does it depend uh, on the context? Uh, again, related a question. Do you think antitrust laws, uh, and this came up uh, briefly in our conversation, do you think antitrust laws should regulate huge private entities like Amazon and Facebook when they become uh, vehicles of promoting hate speech or symbols? And it's given as an example that Amazon has been selling uh, uh, Nazi and white supremacist merchandise uh, from its own platform. Uh, and then finally, uh, again, related uh, set of questions. Uh, quoting Tocqueville, I don't know who that was, but uh, Tocqueville thought that social conformity in a mass democracy uh, was a far greater threat to freedom of speech and thought than any kind of government prohibition. But media outlets and social media companies hold enormous potential to manufacture social pressure. Is not our jurisprudence so often favorable to media companies inadequate to the threat posed by powerful media companies? So these are all questions about mm -hmm. Uh, the uh, relative power wielded by uh, social media companies, what we, how, how we should think about this new kind of entity, and uh, what, we, what we can do, what, what tools, what regulatory tools um, and conceptual tools might be available to address uh, uh, any threat that they might pose to speech. 
I'd like to say something about um, a, a couple of those really interesting and, and challenging questions. Not only did de Tocqueville make the observation that social pressure is a, a more powerful threat than, than government coercion, but that was actually the point that was made by John Stuart Mill's classic essay on liberty, a classic defense of freedom of speech. And I had forgotten until somebody pointed it out to me that his whole essay is focused not on government censorship, but rather on social pressure, peer pressure, and again, looking at the practical suppressive <laughs> impact that it has. So I agree that that is a very serious problem, but in terms of solution, I would say, what is the lesser of two evils? As a civil libertarian and looking at how government has used the inherently subjective discretionary power to silence ideas because of disagreement with their viewpoint, believing that there might potentially be some harm. Uh, I distrust government exercise of the sensorial power more than I distrust uh, this free speech of my fellow members of the community. I do believe that counter speech, including protest, including the flourishing of alternative media is a less dangerous course. I certainly would oppose anything approaching the fairness doctrine, uh, which basically allowed government to require media to, whenever a controversial sub subject was addressed, to give a counter viewpoint. Uh, Floyd, maybe you can remember the details more specifically, but well-intentioned as that might have been, um, in practice, it resulted in reducing the amount of discussion of controversial, important public policy uh, 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 ideas, which were so important for us to hear because of the burden that was put on the media companies. And not surprisingly, different presidents, including Richard Nixon, notoriously used the discretionary power that was vested in them by the Fairness Doctrine to selectively silence those who were reporting less favorably on them. Can I add a word about the Fairness Doctrine? I used to do a lot of work in that area. We don't have one now. Uh, it was abandoned during the Reagan administration. Uh, I, th I think this Supreme Court would likely say it's unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. uh, a prior court in the Red Lion case uh, uh, held it was constitutional. The Fairness Doctrine basically said if a broadcaster put on a, a, a position uh, on a, an issue of public importance, it had to have the other side also. Uh, it didn't have to have a, the, the same number uh, of, of seconds or, or the same number of speakers, but it had to find a way to make sure that the other view uh, was pr presented. Uh, one of the arguments made back then 60s, early 70s about the Fairness Doctrine was, well, there were so many other ways people got information out that we sh you shouldn't treat broadcast entities all that different. Uh, I mean, the print press at that time uh, was uh, existent. 
uh, uh, you remember? Uh, 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 and uh, uh, the uh, print press, the law, had been made very clear that uh, you can't make a newspaper print something because it's the other side. Newspaper wants to take a position, period. Government doesn't have the power to get involved. Well, then, then as Nadine pointed out, you know, it, more and more changes in the marketplace. Now, we have a situation where the other issue we've been talking about, the internet, is so dominant that I, I think the, 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 the chances are very great that the Supreme Court would say that uh, the uh, fairness doctrine itself cannot be revived uh, constitutionally because there are so many other ways to get speech out. Uh, well, the question was whether it should be applied to the internet itself. Yeah, well, uh, the, the internet itself certainly has a profusion of public views that, that, uh, that are expressed uh, uh, down to the most idiotic. Uh, 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 so it's a great First Amendment triumph uh, that that is so. So can I, can I jump in on this question of, you know, what are... And briefly, because I want to... We can do one more question after this. Okay, what, what a regulatory framework might look like. So I, I should just say, you know, Jamal is a visiting academic at the Knight Institute right now, and he's actually uh, curating a series of short essays dealing with this question that I think uh -huh. may come out in the beginning of next year. Um, but I, I think that my instinct is, and I'm not, you know, I don't think I have a settled view on this, but my instinct is that most of what people describe as the problems of social media are traceable to the monopolization that the monopoly that those companies have on the, you know, the free speech environment. And if that's right, you know, then it may be worth, as Floyd and Nadine were saying earlier, thinking not of remedies that are in the First Amendment area, but remedies that are in the area of antitrust or anti-monopoly law. And the most interesting proposal that, I, that I've heard in this context is one that wouldn't break up Facebook in the kind of antitrust form, but would split it up according to its services. So you might think that Facebook actually provides two kind of key services to the public. One is it is literally a social network. It is a contact book for people that um, allows people to associate themselves with other people. It's a, that's, that's the kind of stratum that Facebook provides. And the other is a service that it provides on top of that to those people, which is to curate uh, their uh, news feed in a way that those people may find valuable. And so you might actually think of splitting up those services, um, converting the uh, social network itself into a form of utility that competitors could also use, but leaving the editorial side of Facebook alone, recognizing that that is a First Amendment protected um, uh, function it is providing to its users, but allowing competition in that area by giving multiple people access to the underlying stratum necessary uh, to provide that kind of a service. I think that's a very interesting proposal. It may itself have First Amendment complications, but I think it's one that's worth exploring. Uh, so I'm, I'm told we have time for uh, one more question, uh, and I'll ask a difficult one, uh, and that uh, has to do uh, also, uh, Floyd was talking about the Fairness Doctrine, it also has to do with how we understand uh, the rights of uh, publishers and media companies. Um, so the question is, what are the implications uh, for First Amendment rights of an Espionage Act uh, indictment of Julian Assange? Um, so the, uh, uh, um, and, and it's not, a, not, a, not the easiest question. Well, remember that the Obama administration gave serious consideration, very serious consideration, to an indictment uh, of Assange, uh, and in effect WikiLeaks decided not to do it because the 
same sort of thing uh, that WikiLeaks generally does, uh, some source who's not authorized to reveal information gives them information and they make it public. With that definition, that is what the New York Times does. <laughs> uh, uh, and the ultimate conclusion of the Obama administration was not to go to court on that. There is another way to view WikiLeaks and another possibility in terms of the fact situation. The other way to view WikiLeaks, as the current Secretary of State put it when he was head of the CIA, is that it is an intelligence gathering organization, not a journalistic one. Uh, I, I won't pause on that, we, we don't have time for it. To me, more interesting is, suppose the government makes the case that WikiLeaks did not just receive information, and now we know, from the Russians, which, it then, which they had hacked from the Democratic National Committee. Suppose WikiLeaks in some form had spoken with the Russians before or during their process of the hacking. Would that make them sufficiently unjournalistic or sufficiently like an intelligence gathering entity or sufficiently like a, a, a participant uh, in uh, potential uh, acts of terrorism or acts certainly of intrusion into the American electoral process that they should not receive First Amendment protection. I mean, I, I think we all ought to read very carefully. I mean, we've been told that uh, in error, the Department of Justice uh, released the fact that there is a secret uh, yet unrevealed indictment of WikiLeaks and Assange, presumably. Uh, to read very carefully uh, that document to see just what WikiLeaks is accused of doing. It's already been included uh, in the indictment of the Russians who Mr. Mueller uh, and his team uh, have already indicted, uh, where, where they made very clear that there were discussions post-hacking by the Russians of the, of the DNC with WikiLeaks about the best way to make it all public, to have the greatest impact on the election. That's already in that indictment. Uh, the, the question is, did WikiLeaks do anything more than that? Uh, or is the legal and policy issue going to be, uh, is that enough uh, to strip them of, of what journalists, American journalists, would, would view as their First Amendment rights? I absolutely agree. I mean, a, a prosecution or um, you know, civil litigation against WikiLeaks poses a real threat to press freedom um, unless you are able to come up with convincing and clear ways uh, of distinguishing uh, what WikiLeaks does from what we think of as standard uh, news gathering tactics. And we haven't seen the sealed indictment against Assange, um, if it exists, but we have seen two lawsuits that have been filed against WikiLeaks. And, you know, I've looked at those and it's not clear that what they're alleged to have done is any different than what um, national security reporters do every day, uh, which is acquire classified information from sources not authorized to reveal it, and then often time the publication of that information uh, with the news cycle. Um, but if there's more than that, then uh, we should study it. The real difference is that WikiLeaks 
would be the first entity which is pervasively anti-American, which was accused uh, in this area. So uh, I have always thought, and I'm not alone, that the, the Pentagon Papers case was won in part because of the basic trust that the Supreme Court had that we're all Americans, we're not gonna do things to hurt the country if we can avoid it. We can make, journalists can make mistakes, but that they will not promiscuously harm the country. And when you have WikiLeaks, it's a very different situation. Of course, in Citizens United, the court said that you, know, you can't distinguish, uh, you can't discriminate on the basis of who the speaker is, right? So that's- So it did. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So I actually do have time for one more question, um, uh, and this this actually uh, is is one that uh, relates to something um, that Floyd mentioned in talking about um, campus speech, uh, and it's one of the vexing problems in uh, First Amendment law, which is uh, please discuss uh, uh, nascent, uh, they're not so nascent, but protest restrictions, um, namely legislative proposals which place the cost of law enforcement overtime on the shoulders of activists or others who apply for permits. So raises this question of what kinds of burdens can you impose on people who, uh, even burdens that are in some ways neutral uh, uh, in the sense that they are about the cost of law enforcement. Um, what, can you restrict speech in that way indirectly um, uh, by imposing those kinds of costs? No, that would be blatantly unconstitutional under a Supreme Court decision called the Forsyth County case involving uh, white nationalists. It was a case that the ACLU won in the Supreme Court. And again, you know, the consistent theme that has strung together a lot of cases we've discussed and a lot of principles is a very practical, functional approach. No matter what technique the government uses, the question is, is it abridging freedom of speech, including uh, stifling it, suppressing it, chilling it? And of course, if you have to literally pay a lot of money, uh, especially for organizations that are, are financially strapped, as the cost of exercising your free speech rights, free speech literally not being free in the monetary sense, that is going to suppress the message. So the Supreme Court consistently has said, uh, number one, government may not impose differential costs based on the message. So uh, surely a more controversial <laughs> message is more likely to generate uh, protesters and therefore to impose higher security costs. It's not irrational for the government to contemplate these additional costs, but it may not foist them upon the speaker or those who are hosting the speaker. Uh, the Supreme Court has not gone into much more detail, but it also has indicated that uh, any cost that's imposed really can't be more than symbolic. It has to be de minimis. Can I, can I just complicate that slightly? Uh, what about sanitation costs? So let's say the way in which you speak is through the throwing of confetti. Mm -hmm. And, the, and the, the, the government says, okay, you can do that, but, but it's gonna cost a lot to clean up the confetti. Is that a different case? 
Well, there was a really old case involving, and I'll, I'll look for some help for my co-panelists, a really, really old case that uh, banned the di distribution of handbills at a time when that was the dominant way to, uh, for poorly financed causes who couldn't buy a printing press to reach the public. And, and the rationale was precisely to prevent the cost of, of littering, and the Supreme Court struck that down. And it said, you simply have to find a way to deal with the littering problem that is not suppressing speech. There has to be uh, an alternative measure to deal deal with that. P public forums cost money. There's a, you know, free speech isn't free in that context. But the effect of all this is that we'll have less speech. I mean, that's, that's the bottom line, is that the more we impose for all those good constitutional reasons, the burden of paying for this on the universities and the like, uh, the only way out at some level at the universities is going to be say, we're going to have to change our rules because we cannot afford having X and Y and Z come here and eat up all our discretionary funding. Well, there has been some suggestion that if disciplinary rules and criminal laws that prohibited uh, disruptive or even violent protests were being enforced, which they're not uniformly being enforced, that would it be an effective deterrent to the kind of disruption that then leads to more security costs. So empirical questions that we're not going to resolve um, here. Um, with that, uh, please join me in thanking our panelists. and thanking our great moderator. And, a, and, a, and a apologies to those uh, whose questions uh, we didn't get to. <laughs>